Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Kyle Walters. Kyle interrupted a bullfight in Madrid in 1640 to deliver news of Portugal's rebellion against the crown. Fortunately, they didn't shoot the messenger. Good for you, Kyle. This, of course, is all a lie. If you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 69 of the Thirty Years' War. Last time, we looked at the relations between the French and the Swedes. We built up a picture of the years 1640-41 to in Germany, and on paper, at least, these years were uneventful. No major victories or major losses were sustained by either side, and it had become a war of manoeuvre. Both parties were angling to play a major role in the peace negotiations, which were then being set up ever so gradually. While this happened, Germany continued to burn and great sums of money were wasted until the war was brought to an end. In other words, there could be no end to the suffering. On the grand strategic level, though, these were relatively quiet years for the emperor, his German allies and his Franco-Swedish foes. But the same could not at all be said for Spain because 1640 was the year when the wheels effectively came off as Catalonia revolted in the summer and Portugal revolted in December. These two revolts in their home peninsula weren't really devastating and distracting from the theatres in Europe outside of Iberia. They also provided the French and Dutch with ideal opportunities to strike at the very heart of Madrid. Before long, Dutch aid to Portugal and French aid to Catalonia propelled these revolts to new levels of crisis. All the while, the regime of Count Olivares continued to buckle under the pressure, and King Philip IV was patently unable to provide the same help to his Austrian cousin as he had previously done in the war. The chain reactions of this, of course, would be felt shortly. The wheels were coming off, but the vehicle was, against all expectations, still on the road, at least for the moment. So without any further ado, it's time we return to that theatre, as a collapsing Spain provides the backdrop for our narrative today. In Madrid, in early December 1640, 
King Philip IV of Spain was presiding over a bullfight, which had been hosted to honour the Danish ambassador who was then present. The atmosphere was akin to that of a party. The war with France, not to mention the troubles with Catalonia, seemed far away. On the outskirts of the palace grounds, a troubled rider arrived, so it was said, from Portugal, and he made his way immediately for the Count Duke Olivares. Why should this courier be in such a hurry to see the Count Duke? The palace became full of whispers, and witnesses claimed that the Count Duke's face fell rigid when he was told the news. Few had wanted to believe these rumours as they were put about. Surely it was grave news indeed. If Portugal was in revolt at such a fractious time for the monarchy, what could it mean? Olivares, of course, couldn't burden his king with this disaster, and so, visiting him while at play with some of his close friends, the Count Duke sought to keep up the appearances he had been maintaining for the last few years, and he put a positive spin on what had happened. I bring great news for your majesty, he said. What is it? asked the king with little concern. In one moment, sire, you have won a dukedom and vast wealth, replied the minister. How so? inquired Philip. Sire, the Duke of Braganza has gone mad and has proclaimed himself king of Portugal, so it will be necessary for you to confiscate all his possessions. But this did not please Philip at all, nor had... Olivares really expected it to, we would imagine. The king's long face, according to the historian Martin Hume, fell longer still, and his brow clouded for all his minister's jauntiness. He was no fool, and he knew this was tidings of evil moment. Let a remedy be found for it, was all King Philip said, returning to his game, and the Count Duke, as he left the room, must have wondered how he would fix yet another broken spoke on the Spanish wheel. Contrary to what Olivares claimed, of course, the Duke of Braganza had not gone mad. Instead, he had risen to the occasion, after years of remaining in the background. John, the Duke of Braganza, was the eighth Duke of that house, and his grandmother had been one of several claimants among Portugal's succession crisis in 1580, which had been settled to the favour of King Philip II of Spain. For the last 60 years, Madrid had ruled over its smaller Iberian neighbour, sharing in its fortunes and failures at home and abroad. Spanish rule was not necessarily unpopular, but there remained a significant portion of the Portuguese nobility who were opposed to being squeezed to help Spain. One of the ways Madrid tended to squeeze Spain was to order its nobility to lead in the army, and in the summer of 1640, few conflicts were as pressing for Madrid than that in Catalonia. Ordered to help put the Catalonian revolt down, ironically enough, these Portuguese nobles assessed the situation instead, and noted that there had never been a more opportune time to take advantage of Spanish weakness. In seizing the opportunity to revolt, all they needed was a true leader and figurehead who would represent their struggle. In fact, they would need more than this if Portugal's independence was to be guaranteed. They would need a new king who could justifiably establish a new royal dynasty in Lisbon. In their search for candidates, John, Duke of Braganza, was nominated. At one time a loyal subject of the King of Spain, Duke John was apprehensive, and we're told he was buoyed by his Spanish wife, who encouraged him to seize the throne 
because she wished to be queen, which sounds like all those other historical narratives who blame the ambitious woman. So yeah, we can probably take that with a pinch of salt. But whatever the true reason for Duke John's seizing of the moment, once he signalled his willingness to be king, the nobles acted quickly, arriving in Lisbon on the 1st of December 1640, when all of Iberia was ablaze with news of what the Catalans had done. These nobles gathered in Lisbon before travelling by individual carriages to the royal palace, where the Spanish governor resided. These nobles and their retainers overcame the Spanish guards and began proclaiming their revolution. Apparently unable to contain himself, one noble flung open the windows of the palace and shouted, Liberty! Liberty! Long live King John IV! The Duke of Braganza is our rightful king! Heaven awards him the crown to revive the realm! The Spanish representative was taken completely by surprise. She was Margaret of Mantua, the widow of the late Duke of Mantua, but she also boasted other impressive familial ties. Her maternal grandfather was Philip II, and her father was the Duke of Savoy. These connections did nothing for Margaret in Portugal, though. She was told by the rebellious nobles that she could either leave through the door or be defenestrated through the window. Perhaps envisioning a repeat of Prague, Margaret did as she was told, leaving the keys to Lisbon behind her. The Portuguese capital was in rebel hands, and within a fortnight Duke John would be crowned King John IV of Portugal. History knows him as John the Restorer, for his role in reasserting Portuguese independence and bringing the Portuguese Empire to new heights of power and reach. Before Portugal could be resurrected, though, King John would have to fight against his former master. With news of the coup launched by Portuguese patriots having certainly reached Olivares, the Spanish reaction was surely inevitable. But the Portuguese nobles had chosen their moment well. Throughout 1640, the situation in Catalonia had grown graver with every passing day. A successful campaign in January of that year to roll back the French from the fortress of Salces along the border of Catalonia, provided no respite either from the demanding Olivares or the beleaguered Catalonians. In fact, once Salses had been relieved, Olivares wasted no time writing to the Count of Santa Coloma, Spain's viceroy in Barcelona, saying, It is undeniable that the Catalans in their present condition are not useful to the monarchy and are not serving in person or with their possessions. Moreover, there is no province subject to the king and not even a province outside the Spanish monarchy which conducts its affairs in this way, in a manner offensive to everybody and one that sets a very bad example to other vassals. Now, sir, I want you to tell me the best and cheapest method of getting a good body of Catalan troops some two or three tertios of 2,000 men each. This is a measure that has been adopted in Castile, Italy and Flanders and is to be introduced into Portugal this year, where we are asking for 8,000 men. By this early stage, of course, the Portuguese had yet to revolt and Olivares here was plainly still convinced that the contract which the monarchy's contingent parts had with Madrid would be maintained. It was above Olivares' imagination to suppose that by the end of the year, two significant parties to this Iberian Union would have been peeled off. What Olivares seems to have imagined instead was that Catalonia would fall in line, and it would do its duty to the crown by raising 8,000 men. Furthermore, 
Olivares was equally adamant that soldiers would be quartered in the northern province, not just to quell dissent, but also for the sake of security. If the French had invaded once, they would surely do so again. He wrote as much to Count Santa Coloma on the 7th of February 1740. As regards billeting, I must repeat how vital it is to arrange it properly, because it is against all reason that a province or a kingdom should be defended by an army and not be prepared to quarter it. Similarly, it is unreasonable that a king who has no fixed income from a province should be expected to meet this expense, while the province itself supports neither the king nor the army. And, by your leave, I cannot easily allow myself to be persuaded that a province which has contributed and is contributing nothing should have less substance than those that are heavily taxed. Due to the scarcity of veteran soldiers after so many years of war, Olivares wanted to take the utmost care of the army that had recently relieved Salsas, and he believed it was the duty of the Catalans to aid in this quest. One of Olivares' letters to Count Santa Coloma would even contain the line, I beg you on my knees and from the bottom of my heart to build that army well. And despite Santa Coloma's misgivings about Catalonian reliability, he professed his willingness to obey this command. Before long, Santa Coloma was receiving urgent letters from governors across Catalonia regarding the bad behaviour of the cavalry and the dangerous stubbornness of the Catalans. The entire province has arms in its hands and many of the soldiers are taking the opportunity to desert because they are in such danger, wrote one such governor, adding that the cavalry is utterly disintegrating. This was far indeed from what Olivares had wanted, needed or expected from the Catalans. Considering the circumstances though, it does appear predictable enough. The refusal by the Catalans to give food to the billeted soldiers moved those soldiers to commit great excesses in the name of filling their empty stomachs. This provoked reprisals from the Catalonians and the relationship deteriorated further. As one academic sent from Madrid observed at the time, As long as food is not assured to the soldiers, it is impossible to keep them under control because a hungry man must eat off the land if his majesty does not come to his help. Santa Coloma did his best to reconcile his conflicting orders. On the one hand, he was to pacify the Catalans, but on the other, the billeting was to continue. Reprisals escalated, with the Italian contingents proving especially impatient with the Catalans. Priests were murdered, goods stolen and women defiled. By the end of spring, it was clear that the issue had become personal for the Catalans, but Santa Coloma remained determined to follow his orders to the letter, and having no experience of commanding soldiers, he proved utterly out of his depth. He wrote several concerned letters to Olivares warning of the issues, but the Count Duke remained as resolute as ever. In late February 1640, he wrote that, No king in the world has a province like Catalonia. It is a king and lord, but it renders him no services even when its own safety is at stake. This king and lord can do nothing that he wants in it, nor even things that need to be done. If the enemy invades it, the king has to defend it without any help from the inhabitants who refuse to expose themselves to danger. He has to bring in an army from outside, he has to maintain it, he has to recover the fortresses that have been lost, and then, when the enemy has not yet been driven out, the province refuses to billet it. Sir, we all admire your wisdom, 
But we all, without exception, consider that a viceroy of that province, and especially a native of it, like yourself, should have made an example of these people. Sir, the king our lord is king of Castile, which has billeted troops. He is king of Navarre, which is billeted and is today billeting them. He is king of Aragon, which is doing the same, and Valencia too. He is king of Portugal, which has never objected to billeting. And among Milan, Naples, Flanders, the Indies, the French Comte, there is probably no state or province with more liberties or immunities. Not only when it is helping in its own defence, but even when His Majesty chooses to station troops in it. Should all these kingdoms and provinces follow the example of Catalonia? Really, sir, the Catalans ought to see more of the world than Catalonia. So yeah, this was nothing less than a rant from Olivares, but it was futile. The Catalans wanted neither to compare their privileges to those of their peers in the Spanish monarchy, nor to see more of the world. What they wanted, in effect, was to be left alone. But Olivares could not afford to allow this. In the context of Spain's wars with the French and Dutch, every province had to pull more than its weight, lest other regions of Spain begin to demand similar concessions. It wasn't as though Olivares desired the war to continue. Far from it. God wants us to make peace, he wrote in a memorandum for the king in March 1640, for he is depriving us visibly and absolutely of all the means of war. Indeed, with the exception of some successes in North Italy, the weight of the interconnected conflicts was beginning to tell. Grave defeats, such as those suffered in the Battle of the Downs the year before, in October, demonstrated that Spain could no longer rely on the professionalism of her military machine to make up for shortfalls in resources. But the Catalans were by no means determined to revoke their allegiance to King Philip. The officials charged with upholding the Catalan constitutions were caught between a rock and a hard place which was equally as painful. The problem was that as neither side compromised, the options for redress became more radical, Olivares' responses more draconian, Santa Coloma became more desperate, and the Catalan officials more extreme. An unwillingness or inability to negotiate properly meant that communications were delivered and received under the cloud of aggression or atrocity, and when a leading Catalan official was arrested in late March, the situation deteriorated further. This was followed by a new order to levy Catalan soldiers and use the veteran army which had been billeted to coerce the Catalans into the army where necessary. So long as Catalonia remained quiescent, Olivares didn't really care about its frustrated privileges. There was far too much at stake to worry about that. Yet in the first week of May 1640, the atmosphere changed. As a tertio, denied billeting clashed with local peasants, and in response, both Olivares and Santa Coloma conceived of an incredibly provocative policy. Some 20 houses owned by the worst rebels in the nearby town, coincidentally bearing the same name as Santa Coloma, were to be torched. But when the soldiers arrived to find the town deserted and wine left in some of the houses, there was no way to restrain their wrath. The town was effectively burned to the ground, and news quickly spread to neighbouring regions, whose towns barred their gates to all but Catalonian citizens. By the middle of May 1640, Catalonia's situation had become so grave that the commander there requested permission to withdraw his tertios from Catalonia altogether. His troops burned and looted as they moved, 
and the misery was exacerbated for the Catalonian people thanks to the poor harvest and drought which had plagued the country for months. In South Catalonia, one Spanish official recorded how extensively the situation had now changed, writing to the Viceroy on the 20th of May that We had got these places all settled and content with the billeting, and now they are so transformed that I am in despair, with most of them pretty well determined not to feed the troops and threatening to kill them. The protests were over, and the revolution for Catalonian independence had begun. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It was around this time in the midsummer of 1640 that Olivares began pulling in recruits and commanders from across the Iberian Peninsula, and among those to receive the call was John, Duke of Braganza, before his bid for the Portuguese throne later in the year could have been known. As a potential rival for the Portuguese throne, Olivares had been wary of pushing Duke John too far, but in general, this maternal grandson of King Philip II did his duty. For the moment at least, he fell in line with the other Portuguese nobles who had been called to serve. This was a part of Olivares' two-pronged strategy of neutralising the Portuguese threat before it erupted. Throughout the late 1630s, when French intrigue was thrown into the mix, Olivares had to be wary of that formal rival to Spanish fortunes, a Portuguese war of independence, sponsored by Richelieu's seemingly bottomless pockets, which would spell disaster for Madrid. So, Olivares approached the Portuguese tactfully. Among other policies, he replaced Portuguese captains with Spanish ones. He drained the peninsula of Portuguese levies, sending them to Italy or Germany and getting them away from their homeland. And most importantly, for the likes of Duke John, Olivares issued a recall of all prominent Portuguese nobles in 1638. And while he stayed in Madrid, Duke John was promoted to Governor of the Arms of Portugal the following year. Olivares hoped that by tying Duke John closer to his overlord, 
his potential as a revolutionary leader would be tainted and any aspiring Portuguese nationalists would search elsewhere. These tactics certainly imbued a sense of hesitation within Duke John, but at the point when it mattered, he determined to throw his lot in with the rebels. Upon learning of the full extent of the crisis in Catalonia, Olivares communicated his intention to make the Portuguese fight the Catalans. This way, the Count Duke imagined, Spain could kill two ungrateful birds with one stone, or, in the vegan sense, feed two birds with one scone, and Castile would be spared any further burdens. But the transferal of these very burdens onto the Portuguese populace was what pushed the plotters over the edge, and by late November they'd committed themselves to the cause. By this point, Barcelona had been captured by the Catalonian rebels, and the Spanish viceroy, the Count Santa Coloma, had been executed on the 7th of June as the city fell. With the Catalonian province in total revolt, the border with France was now dangerously porous, and the Portuguese swords, which were meant for those rebels, had been suddenly, shockingly, turned against Madrid. It was nothing short of the ultimate nightmare, and there was nothing for it but to raise additional levies in the aching Castilian heartland. As 1640 turned to 1641, though, to Olivares' apoplectic dismay, matters only got worse. Much of this was Olivares' own fault. After so many years following a given policy line, that of confrontation, aggression and intolerance in the face of challenges to Spanish authority, Olivares found that this approach only inflamed the passions of Spain's new enemies. It did not smother the revolts in their cradles as he had hoped. Worse still, those rebels in Lisbon and Barcelona were actively engaging with one another. They concluded an alliance in early 1641, and both Portugal and Catalonia sent out feelers throughout Europe in their search for allies. These efforts bore a great deal of fruit, but it was poison apples for the Count Duke, whose efforts at intimidating the Catalans by threatening to utterly revoke all their privileges in September 1640 had forced the Barcelona Council to use its contacts with the French Initially, friendship or alliance with France was not necessarily a foregone conclusion, largely because both Paris and Barcelona laid claim to Roussillon, a province which stretches across the Pyrenees and boasted historic links with Catalans and Frenchmen alike. In late 1640, French military planners were also busy with the siege of Turin and were using the manpower pool around Languedoc in southern France to raise an army for that campaign. Whatever soldiers they did send reported to Richelieu that the Catalan rebels were disorganised, more interested in plundering their own lands than combating the enemy, and too ill-disciplined to constitute a proper professional army. As the historian David Parrott wrote, The obvious question in the French court in the last months of 1640 was whether further military resources devoted to the Catalan rebels would be support for a lost cause. In other words, there were several ways for Olivares to weasel his way out of having to face down a French-Catalan alliance in such a sensitive region. The Portuguese revolt erupted at just the right time because it helped to reaffirm French commitments in the region. Furthermore, it hinted that Catalonia and Portugal would not merely distract and reduce the Spanish manpower commitment for France, it would actually provide new avenues to undermine Spain. And these avenues will be heartily pursued in spring 1641. The first such avenue was military, and resulted in the destruction of Olivares' bitter hopes in January 1641. 
The Battle of Monuc on the 27th of January took place only a few weeks after Catalonia had been placed under the authority of the King of France, and this political coup was twinned with the military as the Castilian recruits Olivares reluctantly sent to put the rebels down were routed. The Count Duke's most desperate, urgent bullet had been fired, and it had missed. Now it was only a matter of time before Spain's Dutch and French enemies flooded into these new theatres to capitalise. And Olivares was right to fear. The French had shown their hand in Catalonia, and within a few months, Richelieu was confident enough in the fortunes of King John to send a force of ships to Portugal. These 32 vessels joined with the Portuguese, and in August 1641, mounted an attack on Cadiz. Fortunately for Olivares, disaster did not follow, and the defenders repelled the 4,000 soldiers that the French attempted to land. For the moment at least, the military fortitude of Castile had not been broken. The story of Dutch involvement was less straightforward, but equally ominous for Olivares. Here were more enemies pooling their resources to attack the king's domains, and successful or not, these thousands of cuts would surely result in death eventually. On the 10th of September 1641, a Dutch fleet of nearly 30 vessels also docked at Lisbon, apparently having missed the Cadiz campaign. While they were waiting for new orders, it was learned that in the New World, Dutch privateers had seized more parts of Brazil and had captured Angola, the latter being Portugal's slave trading base. These slights served as uncomfortable reminders of the clashes between Portuguese and Dutch interests. King John offered the Dutch an alliance against Spain, but the Dutch decided that they liked their new Brazilian conquests more than they liked the idea of making common cause against their old enemy. At the same time, it was well known that Portuguese nobles had revolted against Madrid largely because it was perceived that Spain had let Portugal's New World possessions go. King John, if he valued his throne and, in many senses, his head, could not be permitted to do the same. In September 1641, though, these conflicts of interests placed the Dutch Admiral in an awkward position, since he was now docked in something very close to enemy territory. Fortunately for him, King John ignored his nobles' pleas and refused to seize the Dutch vessels here, and his admirals were sweet-talked into mounting a new expedition against the Azores instead. Incredibly, once they were in the open sea, the Dutch admiral turned for home, leaving his embarrassed former allies to curse the Dutch yet again. Evidently, the Dutch and Portuguese were destined to endure a relationship closer to enemies than allies, but they at least held the war with Spain in common. It was surely evident to the Dutch by now that the old Spanish enemy wasn't so formidable any longer. With the eruptions so close to home, it was impossible to imagine that Madrid would have men or monies to spare for any new campaigns in the Netherlands. As a result, Frederick Henry engaged in negotiations designed to increase the prominence and power of the House of Orange by marrying in to the House of Stuart. His son William was wed to Mary in May 1641, and from that moment onwards, Anglo-Dutch history and, in many respects, Irish history was destined never to be the same again. William had been quite taken with his English bride, confessing in May that, I will tell you how everything is. At first, we were, both of us, a little serious, but now we are quite at our ease together. I find her much prettier than her portrait. I love her very much, and I believe she loves me too. 
But love was less important to Frederick Henry than the security of the Republic, security which he believed Britain would help guarantee. Throughout 1640-41, the Dutch stadtholder had been repulsed from Bruges and Hulst, but he had seized the consolation prize of Gennep on the eastern frontier of the Dutch Republic. It was while assaulting Hulst, though, that the interests of Frederick Henry's branch of the House of Orange spotted an opportunity, thanks to the untimely death of another stadtholder, who left vacancies in the other Dutch provinces, which Frederick Henry sought immediately to fill with his own branch. That this backfired spoke volumes about the way these provinces jealously guarded their privileges, but it also hinted towards a creeping suspicion of Frederick Henry generally. With his military victories and the royal marriage of his son, was the House of Orange growing too powerful? These questions would be answered, in fact, by the end of the 1640s, when a new generation was at the helm. The dissatisfying Dutch returns notwithstanding, Olivares' position in 1641 was still grave. Following the loss in late January at Monuc, Spanish security was greatly reduced and the Count Duke's freedom of action compromised. How was Spain now to combat the two revolts in two corners of its own realm? Inevitably, her attentions would have to be focused somewhere, and during the next few years the change would become apparent. Spain was to concentrate on Catalonia and dig in for defence in the Spanish Netherlands and against Portugal. This meant that Spanish power would be directed primarily not against the Dutch, but against the newly proclaimed Count of Barcelona, Louis XIII of France. Spain's bitterness, as Derek Croxton observed, was transferred from the Dutch to the French, and just in time for the war to enter its final phase. And on that note, history friends, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks so much for joining me. Sorry this episode is a bit late. I kind of took Thanksgiving weekend off, even though I'm not American and haven't eaten turkey and I'm saving it for Christmas because Christmas dinner is like the highlight of my year. So yeah, I kind of just really focused on the PhD and didn't do very much else. But I really appreciate your continued support and patience as my release schedule kind of splutters and dies. You know me by now, I'm doing my best here and I'm trying to balance these things at the same time. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And hey, if you're feeling sociable, why not get in touch? Join our Facebook group or follow me on Twitter if you like political rantings. Other than that, guys, have a great week. Thanks for joining me and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.